Hello and welcome to Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for working photographers. I'm Tyler Stallman. And I'm Cameron Whitman. And what are we going to talk about today? I believe we had a request to talk about portrait lighting. That's a great idea. The, the original idea of the show is to talk about forever useful information, which sometimes we remember to do that. <laughs> so maybe, maybe this will be the goal of this episode is to lay down some of the basics of uh, things we go back to every time when we are shooting a portrait. Both like, how do you start off easy when you don't have the gear, you don't have the expertise Go outside. There we go. Done. Okay, moving on. <laughs> we'll, we'll, break, we'll break it down a little bit more. And then how do you move on to more advanced stuff? Like when you want to spend some money on gear, how do you spend it in a smart way and set it up so that you've got great lighting? Yeah. So uh, now, what's your go-to when you want to shoot a portrait? Do you have a, a baseline of like, I always start here? Um, sort of, somewhat. Typically, my go-to with portrait lighting is I really like a butterfly lighting. And can you explain for uh, me and everyone else that didn't go to photo school what butterfly lighting is? It's when you you take a light, you know, you can use it doesn't really matter what kind of source you use, but right, you take a candle. Well, I, I guess it has to be a some kind of a You take well, a flashlight. <laughs> okay. Well, no. that that could end up being a little more spooky. Okay, so you take your flash <laughs> or your strobe or okay. your softbox or your uh, beauty dish. And uh, basically, you set it up in front of and above the model. And the reason why it's called butterfly lighting is because there's a shadow that just created underneath the nose that has a little bit of a butterfly look. And that's why they call it that. And that is, uh, just in general, I, I find it to be something that I think is kind of dramatic. It's kind of like almost like a beauty style lighting. Um, if you use it with, if you're careful enough and you can figure out how to do really narrow depth of field with it, you can get some interesting looks from it. So that's that's one of the ones that I tend to go into first. And uh, another classic favorite is Rembrandt lighting. And do you know that one? I forget. Why don't you jog my memory? So if I remember correctly, and always willing to be schooled, the way that this came about was, uh, you know, Rembrandt's obviously known for his gorgeous light, right? His paintings. Mm -hmm. And the effect is, it was created from a high-angled window that was in his studio. And so that window was like high up in, the, in his room. He had like a vaulted ceiling or something. And the way that it that it falls on the face creates like a little triangle on the opposite side of the nose mm -hmm. right so there's a, like a triangle of light that hits that that the opposite side of the face and there's just something about it that is it's it's always really dramatic and it's just really kind of beautiful and this is when there's minimal fill coming from the other side like you've got pretty heavy shadows on the on the darker side of the face yes absolutely <laughs> it's meant to be certainly like a more dramatic look um, and the triangle is can do a lot of different things. I mean, you can vary the size of it, but generally speaking, it falls from the end of the the opposite eye down to the bottom of the nose, where the the bottom of the nose and the mouth meet. And so, basically, it just lights that part of the cheek. So, it creates a you know a dramatic effect on your subject, but it also does not hide their face. Well, and the nice thing about it is that it's it can literally just be where you start. You know, you can just do this right away mm -hmm. and with minimal effort or research like you don't have to think very hard about it and yeah. you can be doing a nice job of it 
in a, in an afternoon, you know, like it, and it can take you the rest of your career too. Like you can base a lifetime of work off of, of these simple techniques. Um, yep. If you're able to, you know, kind of get all the other pieces, right. The one thing that I'd say about it is that it's definitely not something that could work for anything. Where is I think that butterfly lighting is a more, maybe, maybe I do want to say useful. You can create a lot of different effects using butterfly lighting, whereas with Rembrandt lighting, it's almost always dramatic. You know, like if you're trying to take like a really nice and easy portrait of somebody that they want to use for maybe their um, LinkedIn <laughs> or something, yep. it's probably not going to be the best option because it's yeah, a little yeah. too dramatic for that. Yeah. yeah, I don't have a lot of photos that, that are using that technique. But uh, okay, let's go back a step to assuming people aren't able to move a light yet and you're you're just setting things up naturally you were saying go outside can you elaborate like obviously obviously if you just walk outside you can screw up a portrait pretty bad like what are the necessary elements to make an outdoor portrait really work out that's a good one so one of the things is i i would never recommend shooting in full light (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, especially if the light is behind you um, it's just too much. It's too harsh. On the- well, or we should also clarify with this and with any advice we give, like you can make anything work, right? Like there is a way to shoot terrible lighting and have a really fantastic photo. Yes. This advice question. is like, if you want to not screw it up and you're not really sure what makes for great or poor lighting, this is, this is where to start. And one of the things that I'd recommend is is trying to find a place where you can get kind of like a split lighting effect so that the sun or at least the dominating amount of light that could come from just the sky, right? It doesn't have to come from the sun itself. Um, so like if you're in a shadow and yet the sun is really bright on one side, you could, you know, pick the, the side of the face that you find to be the nicest and, you know, face it to where that light is reflecting back strongly. And then that can work. And split lighting is basically when your light source is just off to one side or the other. And a a way to look for this that you might not expect is uh, to make sure you see what is being lit around you. Like what is having direct light hit it? Because if you just walk into deep shade where there's no, nothing is being hit by sunlight near you, that can get really flat, which yeah, that can work. Flat lights can be fine. Any any kind of light can be fine. And flat light's actually a bit easier to work with. But if you want some shape to it, you know, look for a wall that is getting pounded with sunlight and be a few steps away from that in the shade. Mm-hmm. Or if you're, say, standing in the shadow of a, a building or a wall, if you step towards the edge of the shadow where the sun is hitting the ground, especially assuming the ground is, say, concrete, if it's grass you probably don't want that grass reflection coming up. But going near a nice reflective source can amplify the the intensity of the bounce, right? So you'll see that secondary light source, or it could even become the primary light source, the bounce, really amp up by getting closer to it. And I think that's something I, I didn't think about for a long time while I was shooting. I, I knew the shade could be helpful shooting outside or not being in direct light, mm-hmm. but I didn't know how to look for secondary light sources and identifying them is is really helpful. Yeah. So this is actually something that can be a lot of fun when you're doing portraits on the street, especially if it's you're in the midday and there might be a lot of really unfortunate light bouncing around. But if you're in a city and you can find a block that is has a lot of shade that you can get, you know, a nice 
kind of flat light. And then you can use the reflected light. You kind of have to search for it and you might have to run along with it <laughs> in some cases because the sun is moving. But the reflected lights from the windows of buildings is something that is one of my very favorite light sources to use for portraits in the city. I know we talked about this in a previous episode, but the way that different cities can really have different light qualities, mm-hmm. and it, it, especially in terms of portraiture, there's real advantages to certain cities. Like if you're shooting in Paris or New York, it is much easier to find this beautiful reflective light than mm-hmm. a, a smaller city, basically. I mean, or if you know all the buildings are red brick instead of gray stone or your streets are dark instead of light, or there's no glass buildings nearby to give a really... You know, there's all these things that have a huge effect on what the average light is as you walk around. And I mean, so one of the shortcuts to it is tall buildings. Like, Mm -hmm. if you go downtown, you'll find a lot more nice light than in the suburbs. Exactly. And sometimes... So, you know, it's something that you could do if you happen to to be near like you know a mirror type of building something that has a lot of uh, high reflectance and it was behind the subject then you could use that to not only create a rim light on your subject but then if you depending on the situation there might be a window or glass close to you that is also going to reflect that same light back to their face so you could get either a broad or short lighting effect from the reflected light on their face and then also have the added feature of having the rim light coming from the same reflection. So one light source could do all of that for you. Well, do you bring a reflector with you when you go out? Mm, It's hard to say, do I? It's been a while since I've done anything like that. So not generally, no. Yeah, I used to kind of always because it's it's a good shortcut to not having to search for the light. And uh, because I'll also say, it depends on the situation. Like if I were being hired to shoot a campaign, yeah. like, uh, you know, there are models that are being paid to be there for a day and this needs to all happen right now, regardless of if you find nice light or not, I'm going to control this light a hell of a lot more. I'm going to bring reflectors and lights. I'm going to bring strobes. I'm going to be ready to create the light if I don't find it, because sometimes you don't find it. You know, or sometimes it's just, it, there's sometimes it's almost perfect, but uh, the ratio between the subject and the background is too far off, and you just need to bring up their eyes or their face or their everything, right? So, uh, if there's a client that if this is mission critical that in the next hour we walk away with a cover photo, mm-hmm. bring bring everything, <laughs> you know, be be prepared. Absolutely. That's a really important distinction to make because, you know, I tend to think about things in terms of, you know, what any average photographer that might just be on the street running around trying to grab a portrait. But if you're in a job, the the stakes are high. (laughs) Yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. Be prepared. Bring everything that you might need and including an assistant or two. Yeah. You know, because the the likelihood that you're going to be able to, to direct you know, focus and, and hold a, a reflector. It's not very good. And also like if you're in the, if you're in the city, then, you know, like you're not going to be able to like set up a stand and put your modifiers on those, you know, it's just going to be too much. It's going to be too chaotic. You got to bring people with you. Let's kind of move a little more in studio. Now that we're talking about gear, do you have anything that you always bring with you? Like, is there a one uh, piece of 
portrait kit that you typically do have? You can say a camera if you want, but <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> well, uh, 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 the the lenses is going to matter a lot, right? I generally try to to have three lenses on hand: a fifty, eighty-five, and one hundred five. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only time that I want to use a fifty is if kind of want to accentuate features. Uh, it, it does get a little bit bendy or distorted, and it's not always the best thing, but it also adds more depth, and it can definitely make a more interesting portrait, especially if you use that in conjunction with, with moody or interesting light. But it also can it not necessarily give the, the most accurate representation of your subject. So, right. Or I think about a 50 more in terms of it adding more context, that you, because you're able to go a little wider you can tell more of the environmental story about yeah. the so, location and stuff. But if you're talking about a studio. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Sorry. We're in yes. studio now. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. That's what you, you don't said. need to that environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like the only, you know, if you're not really trying to add so much environment, but maybe you want to add a little bit more, you know, maybe like a waist up and like, especially if you're doing something that's more fashion oriented and you want to show a little bit more than a 50 pulled back a little bit, it's probably not going to have, too much distortion and that could work really great yeah right? Right. um a 35 is going to get to be too wide and yeah. if you shoot basically anytime you're shooting with a student this is just me right my experience but like anytime shooting in a studio environment anything wider than a 50 is is just too wide my favorite studio lens has always been the 24 to 105 which my my it doesn't go on the camera that much anymore because I actually don't I don't do studio portraits much anymore. It was my main thing for a while and I barely do it now. Mm-hmm. So usually I use twenty four to seventy for everything now. But in studio that reach of of twenty four or sorry one oh five so that typically you're you're usually shooting from fifty to one oh five. Um I really like. I mean I just find it to be very versatile and I usually don't in, unless I'm doing like a really uh, fast aperture, low depth field kind of thing, but that's not as common. Right. For me. And, you know, one of the main reasons that you might want to use that longer lens anywhere from, you know, a 185 to a 135 is that you're going to give a more accurate representation of the person's features. Uh, so you're not going to accentuate their nose or make their, their cheekbones wider. Or... Accurate, also known as flattering. Exactly. The longer that you get, the slimmer it can get. But also you have to watch out because... If you get too long, then you can really start to flatten everything, mm-hmm. and then their face can get you can lose dynamic. You know, like it is that the right? It loses sure. depth. So, right. you know, when you flatten out a face, it, it can actually make somebody look less flattering too. So you have to kind of you have to study the face, right, and not just rely on a single lens. So, like if you have a lot of success with one lens, just in general. That's great, but what happens when all of a sudden you get like a completely different looking person, you know, that has like a a longer, slimmer face or something, or like a whiter, fatter face? Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden, you know, like you're what you're used to using and what you think works just because, you know, you've had success with it might not work. And so it's, it's a really good idea to, to have a couple extra options on hand and to experiment with them. You know, oftentimes when, you know, I used to do a lot of headshot photography and what I would do is while I was waiting for the, the model to kind of relax, 
is that I would say like, oh, I'm just doing lighting tests. <laughs> yeah, um, right. And the truth was, is I, you know, I, I knew exactly what I wanted the light to do and I had it set up before they even got there. And really what I was doing is doing lens tests to check and see like, okay, so this nose makes, or this is sorry, this lens <laughs> length makes their nose a little bit fat or this, this one makes their, all their features really flat and unflattering. So, you know, it, you, you just experiment a little bit, you know, it doesn't take that much time you know, just to take a couple quick snaps and study them. Yep. Uh, the thing that's that I think is really difficult in that situation is is to be able to accurately study how the lens is affecting their features on the back of the camera. You know, that's where I feel like it's it's a struggle. So if you can tether, be aware of it. Yeah, if you can tether, it's it's a lot better because then you can you know actually see the result largely. But uh, the, the other flip side of that that makes it difficult is your subject's always like, oh, can I see? <laughs> yeah. Which is like, I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's an absolute deal breaker. You know, like I, I'm like, no. I think it really depends on who you're working with. If if it is a more collaborative, I mean, the quickest examples that, you know, I'm shooting with my wife all the time and like, yeah, we're working together. She's she's going to look. Um, if it's somebody that's very uncomfortable with how they look, then it's yes. an absolutely no. But yes. Basically, if it's a professional model, like somebody that does this all the time, it can be a huge benefit for them to see, like, what was I just doing? Oh, I can make adjustments based on what I'm aware of. Very true. I think there's a very clear line between professional subjects and, you know, amateur subjects, like um, just real people who it might get in their head in the wrong way versus giving them useful information in, in how to change what they're doing. Yeah, that's a really great distinction. Thank you for bringing that up. Like one of the things that I've always found to be a challenge is when you have, when you're doing, especially like an environmental portrait or a headshot of somebody that's important, you know, they're usually always like, can I see it now? And then they also want to <laughs> yeah. to start directing how you're going to take the photo. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't want to name names, but there's there's a, a an important person that I have to photograph all the time. And this person is constantly saying, can you shoot from a higher angle? Mm-hmm. You know, because the person is worried. About, I don't want to even give any hints, but this person is always worried about like a double. We'll just chin say or it. Something. We'll just say it's your son. I'm sure. <laughs> um, more important, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the photos would definitely be seen by the public. You know, in every case, so th- this person is always like trying to get me to to go higher, and you know, I'm not a tall person. I'm five eight. So, you know, like me standing up like that is is difficult and doesn't allow me to to frame the photo quite the way I want to frame also it. Also may not always be the best way of making a chin look flattering. Like it it's, it's not really the not. only thing to you do. So, right. So I mean a lot of times it's it's how the model frame, you know, positions their neck. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure, like kind of the flexing of the muscles and the mm-hmm. how far it comes out. Yeah, you can definitely tell somebody that's experienced with posing versus, you know, everyone else. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For for my side of studio stuff, I want to go to what my, my real inspiration was for getting into heavily lit photos. Like I was really into major studio lighting mm-hmm. for a while. And honestly, a lot of it was driven by Jill Greenberg. Yeah, same. Who was, you know, she, I, yeah, I think she, at the time, which would be what, like 2005 was kind of when she was really huge Mm -hmm. uh that style um and if you know if you look at her name like the thing that'll come up the most is the baby's crying like that that collection of photos is really famous and the the monkeys and she's done a lot of celebrities and i think she's 
outrageously talented um but really just kind of stuck with one look which you know i think that's fine like it, it really became known for her and it's when i do that style of lighting i'm always thinking of her and kind of referencing her mm-hmm. and to explain it this is when there's a very strong rim lighting on both sides yeah. a strong hair light above so there's basically a good 360 coverage behind them and then there is pretty full lighting on the face. So the way I achieved this in, in mind, like I, a lot of my portfolio stuff, you can still see this in my older works. I did it so many times mm-hmm. would have a kind of traditional key light above the subject, maybe off to one side a bit. So there's a, some shape to their face. Yeah. This is, and, that's basically the same as butterfly lighting. Well, and then I would add a <clears throat> ring light to the front. Ooh. That's where the like surrealism comes from is the way that the shadows fill. And usually it's turned way down, but just having no deep shadows, like there's nowhere that has, that is without detail. So you still have that shape, but they're also kind of, it gives that hyper real HDR look without cranking up your HDI sliders. Like it's not done in post. It's you're just fully lighting everything in the scene, Mm -hmm. but with both strong uh, direction of the light and then also quite a bit of fill and it, it makes for a really strong effect, really impactful. Uh, you know, like I actually, I have to admit that you, you were a big influence on me. Thank Jill Greenberg. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, that, that was another one, but I saw you doing it for stock and I was like, God, oh, that works perfect for stock. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I jumped on the bandwagon too and it was a huge success. Another really strong influence that uh, I I don't feel like I was able to ever recreate. Like Jill Greenberg's, you can figure out that lighting. It's a good place to start. You'll you'll get it. You know if you if you try. A much more subtle and challenging one is Dan Winters. Mm-hmm. He, I've spent a lot of tr- time emulating what he does, which is a a very subdued. Um, it, it, it a lot of them will have that feeling of Rembrandt lighting, but it it isn't actually Rembrandt lighting. It's um, it, it, I don't know. It changes more. You got to Google all these, like uh, just you know, just type Dan Winters into search results, and uh, same with Jill Greenberg, so you know what we're talking about. Yeah. But um, it's this, yeah, it's very subtle and very controlled. And the there were still some of his that uh, I also he, he was the one that I pulled that idea of adding the ring light from. Um, he doesn't do it often, actually, like when you're flipping through his search results. It's not his standard setup, but he'd done some portraits for uh, Will Ferrell for Wired Magazine that I, I could really strongly see it. I'm like, wow, that really makes this look artificial. And it's it's a very interesting to, way to light. So, Well, I feel like with Dan Winters, there's a lot of flagging happening. Yeah, totally. Like controlled shadow, intentional yeah. shadows, and like the sides of the faces will often completely fall off in an unnatural way. So what I like about his style is that it's not what any amateur photographer will accidentally fall on quickly. You know, you can't throw up one light and just get this. You have to, this is a crafted light. And to me is a sign of uh, someone with a clear understanding of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's what's something I have a lot of appreciation for it. Um, the way that I've always kind of, th- well, I'm not sure I always thought of it this way, but like, you know, looking back on it now, I think that it's, it's very like painterly. Yes. yes. You know, without having to rely on a bunch of Photoshop to do it, um, which 
I, I think you can tell the difference, right? No, for sure. Yeah. F- flags like crazy, which flags is such, I, I think it's a very advanced thing for photographers in cinema. You flags come in right away. Like you're, you're using flags in your first day of film school. But, uh, I think most photographers don't use flags at all. Like I very rarely pull them out for a photo because it's sort of a pain. Like, eh, you know, I just, I, like they're, they're not handy <laughs> and it's just usually quicker not to. Um, to go with a more, uh, you know, just light falling, all, spilling all over the place. But um, well, it see, can have such a dramatic effect. Yeah. And I think that, you know, part of what makes doing like natural light portraits inside of a house, you know, where you have kind of just really random light happening in weird ways and you can position somebody in such a way that it it creates a really interesting and unusual effect that is practically impossible to create. Mm-hmm. And that's where my inspiration for flagging comes in. Because if I want to get a similar feeling. Yeah, more naturalistic. Right. But also like very difficult for somebody else to copy. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's uh, is, is where flagging comes in. I actually, I'll, I'll share one of my favorite results from using a, a combination of of flags and also um, snoot. Yeah, I, I think I bought. I think I bought a snoot. <laughs> I don't think I ever used a snoot. I um, think it's no, that's not true. I didn't buy it. <laughs> but but yes, snoots go on. Snoot is you know it's a it's a funny word first off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's a it's a difficult. I think it's a, it's a hard thing to use in the studio. Well, right. Mm-hmm. But if you have the right idea that it can come off being pretty interesting. But snoots are not necessarily the the first thing that I would attempt to use for making a creative portrait. I think flagging is definitely a more more viable option. But then if you get really into it, then you can start flagging your snoot. Whoa. Flag a snoot? Wow. <laughs> or, you know, go for it. for that. You know? Yeah, but I, 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 I've experimented a little bit with doing some large format portraiture on film and I, nothing is more challenging than that to me. But I had I have one in particular that was just I, th- I think it was something that I was really happy with, and I did it in black and white. And I used two lights, actually three lights. I lit the background, then I had a snoot on on the eye, and then I also had a very very soft rim light just to give a little bit of dimension to the backside of the face because most of his most of the portrait is is uh, silhouette. And then there's just a little bit of these touches of light. And I think it's just fascinating. And so I'll share that one with you. Awesome. Yeah, well, check it out uh, by looking at the show notes. And if people want to check you out, where do they find you on the internet, Cameron? Um, I'm probably most active on Twitter. And my handle is Camrocker. Cool. And I'm Stallman everywhere-ish. Just yeah. Google that. You'll find it. Stallman-ish. <laughs> <laughs>